Good morning, family. Good morning. Welcome home. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Hope you're having a good Sunday so far. We are in the middle of our series going through the book of Exodus, and we'll be in Exodus chapter 10 here in a bit. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, you can do so. Um, but when we get there, it'll be also on the screen as well. And so Exodus 10 is, we're right in the middle on the tail end of all the plagues uh, in Egypt, and so we're going to be kind of bringing that story almost to a close uh, this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we dive into the scriptures. Therefore, I thank you so much for this time, a time in which we can read your word, a time in which we can know you and respond to you, a time that we can gather as your people. Be encouraged as we hear each other sing, as we hear each other pray, as we uh, are united by our common faith and then sit under your word where we can grow together as your people to respond to this world, to reach this world for your glory. Lord, I just pray that we can be moved how you would want us to be moved. That as we read, as we study, that you can teach us what we need to be taught. That we can see the truths you would have be implanted on our hearts and our minds, that you can give us the courage to respond with all of who we are. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, ha I have a brother named Seth, and he is maybe the best storyteller you've ever heard. Like, he can take a chance encounter and turn it into an epic that has everyone laughing. Now, if he only could use his powers for good, it would be so great. But he chooses not to. But there's something about stories. Stories are so great. When you have a family member who's a great storyteller, you know, you, it makes family gatherings that much more interesting as we laugh together, cry together, and remember together. Stories have power. That's why families actually tell some of the same stories again and again. Chances are, when you gather with your family, you hear the same stories again and again. Maybe the classics, maybe, maybe about how your parents meant, or maybe about something that funny happened, or maybe about that one injustice that one, that one sibling feels happened to them. Chances are that story happens, gets told again and again. Why? Because stories have power. It allows families to remember loved ones. It allows families to remember things about their past. It makes people laugh. It brings people together because stories have that power. They can grab your attention. They can send your imagination kind of whirling. They can move our emotions, and they can even affect our affections. Stories are that powerful because they capture us. Family tells stories to, as I said, to kind of keep, maybe keep memories going, but also parents tell stories or Society tells stories to help train younger people. Stories can help train people on how they should behave and the morals that they should follow and, and what they should, should do. That they actually, stories can instill a sense of identity in us as we listen to stories and respond to stories. Chances are, probably not right now, but in a few minutes, back in the kids' wing, after they get the kids all settled, There'll be Bible stories being shared. Why? Because it captures the kids' imagination and it instills in them a sense of who God is and how they can respond to him and know him. Stories have that power. And we, 
have a story that we are picking up in, the sto- in, in Exodus chapter 10, a story that becomes central to the identity of the Jewish people, a story that kind of frames their whole understanding of how God redeems, a story that actually gives them a national identity for the future, that forever, ever again, it kind of mentions about who they are, God reminds them of this story and says, this is your story, the story I have given you about who you are, and through that we actually can learn about our own story that God has given us that gives us a sense of identity and moves us to know him. And so let's pick up in Exodus chapter 10 and read the uh, Exodus chapter 10 as we see just what this story is. Just a quick reminder, as I said, this is Moses and Aaron. They're walking into Pharaoh, and they have kind of delivered these warnings, let my people go, uh, and, they have kind of, and God has delivered kind of a lot of these plagues upon the Egyptian people to convince them of who he is and to show his supremacy over all everything else and how these are like warnings again and again to listen to what Moses and Aaron are saying. And so you got to back up, and we got the, the Nile turning into blood. We got frogs coming up and plugging the whole land. Land. We got gnats, we got flies, we got livestock dying, we got boils on our skin, we got a big hailstorm wiping out the nation, and this is where it picks up uh, in, in uh, chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts upon your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and, you, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hell, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and shall fill your houses and your houses of your servants, and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen, from the, the day they came on this earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let, men, let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to him, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the, uh, for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts, the locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Says a dense swarm of locusts as has never been before seen, be, never been before, uh, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the land, whole land, so the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the, the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Let only your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, we must also, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Now a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take, the, take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. see in this chapter the eighth and ninth plagues visited upon Egypt. And what are we supposed to draw from these plagues that might be different from the other ones? I'll just pull out some of these, these, uh, these ideas to this idea of humble yourself before our eclipsing God. That the, the chapter kind of starts with this idea that, that Pharaoh has not humbled himself and that we need to humble ourselves, that, that everyone needs to humble themselves before this God. Why? Because he is an eclipsing God. He's greater than anything else that there could be. And he has shown it again and again through these plagues, and he's showing it again now through this, these final kind of plagues that he is the one that should be worshipped. He is the one that we should look towards besides anything else, and that we need to humble ourselves before him. And actually, the only way that humanity can approach God is from a spirit of humility, to realize that we are human, we are flawed, we don't have what it takes to reach his heights, that he is greater, he is more powerful, he is perfection, he is pure, he is holy, and we cannot enter his presence but only by his grace. And we only can receive that grace is when we humble ourselves before him. And God is driving this point home again and again to the Egyptians and to the Israelites that you humble yourselves before our eclipsing God. And I think he's making this point when we just kind of look at these, these uh, the plagues that happen, but also this, the interactions and the conversations that happen around these plagues. Well, let's just focus on the plagues. First of all, the, we have the eighth plague that you might be, uh, might be heading in your Bible, and it's this plague of locusts that uh, these, these insects, this plague of locusts would sweep across the land unlike anything that's been ever seen before. And if you've been reading this and we've been looking at these plagues, you might say, well, what's so different between this plague and gnats and flies that came before? But locusts are a completely different animal. They knew what locusts were. They actually would sacrifice, and Egyptians would sacrifice and pray to the deities for protection against locusts. 
Because locusts could devour and destroy a country. That when we think about a locust, we're like, what is that? It's just a big grasshopper, right? What's so bad about that? But a locust has this ability to consume unsightly amounts of food, kind of like me on Thanksgiving, but maybe more. Because a locust can consume up to its body weight each and every day. And you're like, well, yeah, but it's a small little grasshopper thing. That doesn't matter. It's like two grams tops. But when you take that and multiply it by millions, you get a plague that devastates countries. That actually people talk, the uh, scientists who study locusts talk about how there are locust uh, swarms that, that cross the nations nowadays. They can actually reach 100 to 200 million locusts per square mile, just devouring everything in, everything in sight. One, one uh, person who studies locusts says, they are nature's most awesome example of the collective destructive power of, of a species. And they can leave a region in famine for years. And this is something that they knew about, the, the Egyptians knew about. It's actually something that is even going, uh, going on right now. I was looking at all these examples of these locust swarms that have been going across the world, and especially across Africa for, for, you know, since we've known history. But it talks about in the 1920s, 1930s, that there's recorded locust swarms sweeping across Africa that wiped out 5 million square miles an area almost double the size of the United States. And that was just in the 20s, in the 30s. This was happening. That billions of locusts are, have, been, have been known to move across North Africa in the worst plague. And this happened in 1954, blotting out the sun and settling the la- uh, setting on the land like a black, ravenous carpus, carpet to strip it clean of vegetation. These are reports in 1954 of this happening. And there's more and more about it. Even in 2001, it talks about how in Central Asia and that these, these uh, locusts were swarming and devouring everything in sight. And in fact, one study said that there was uh, about 10,000 locusts per square 10 feet. 10,000 of these little bugs that's devouring everything in sight. And those are examples we know, but yet God says, I'm sending a swarm of locusts like you've never seen. One that probably is more than any of that. Thousands, millions upon millions of insects devouring everything in sight, crawling through people's houses, just leaving Egypt in ruin. Even Pharaoh says that when he begs Moses to kind of send these away, he's like, send this death away from me because he knew this was the ruin of his nation. Pretty extreme. But the Egyptians were being brought to their knees to realize who God is in his power. There's also a humiliation of the Egyptian deity that we talked about again and again through these, through these plagues that God was making a point that he is more powerful than any of these false gods the Egyptians looked to. And that the Egyptians, as I mentioned, they kind of looked to their false gods to protect their fields. That there's even evidence that people have dug up these kind of plaques they would put around their fields and plaques they kind of would, would put towards their gods or talk about their gods that they would say, have sayings like, this is a fine field uh, which the gods protected against grasshoppers because they believed their gods protected these fields. And here comes God saying, they don't protect you. That if you want to know who is in charge, if you want to know who's in control, there's only one place to look, and that is to the God of the Israelites. 
as to the true God. One commentator says that this was driving the Egyptians to their knees, realizing that while they, were, they learned to look to their deities for their daily bread, this reminded them that there's only one God that can provide it, and that is the God of Israel. And that's what they're being driven to, that they need to humble themselves before this mighty God. And then you have this other plague that just kind of comes right on the tail end of the locusts. Moses prays, the locusts get swept back out into the Red Sea, and then you have darkness come upon the land. A darkness where the lights just went out. Now people want to try to explain this from a naturalistic kind of perspective. They say, well, this could have been a sandstorm that kind of just covered the sky, or this could have been something else. Maybe an eclipse that only kind of part of the country of Egypt was covered, was blocked from the sun. But I don't think you can, you can take that view when you read the text, because this was pitch darkness. For three days, there was no light. It says they didn't even get up, because they couldn't get up. They couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. They couldn't even talk to people. They couldn't do business like usual. They stood in their homes for three days saying, we can't see. I don't know if you have ever experienced pitch blackness like that before, but it can be kind of unnerving. You don't know what to do. When I was in high school, I loved to uh, go up to Devil's Den and you know, go through the Devil's Den. They, I don't think you can do anymore. They put, they put they locked it off. But I remember we, uh, I was part of the German club because I was cool in high school. And so when we had the German uh, exchange students come, yeah, I'm that cool. And so when we had the German exchange students come, they went up to Devil's Den, and one of my friends and I were like, oh, we're going with them because we get out of school, right? And we must have gone through that cave like five times just by ourselves. The Germans didn't want to do it, but we did it five times because it was really fun. But there's, you know, when you're in a cave like that, you turn off your lights, you can't see anything. Like anything. You can't see anything. And the only thing that almost makes it bearable is that you're in a cave and you know there's one way in front of you that you can move. But this is what the darkness that is, talk, is being talked about in Exodus chapter 10. A darkness so black that they couldn't see anything. They couldn't travel. They couldn't even get up. It's almost like God was saying, time out, think for a second. You have three days to dwell on what you have experienced before. You have three days to actually dwell and realize who I am. You have three days to focus on the fact that I am the true God. And have you been looking anywhere else? You've been looking towards false gods. But this is also a direct attack against the Egyptians' biggest deity. For the Egyptians were all sun worshipers. They worshipped the sun. And they're, they're the supreme deity of the Egyptian pantheon was Amun-Ra, or Amun-Re. This, this, the, the supreme deity was the sun god, and people would worship this deity, thinking he was the end-all, be-all. He was the giver of life. He was the one they would look towards for guidance. And actually, Pharaoh was supposed to be descended from him. Pharaoh was supposed to be his representative. Pharaoh was supposed to speak on his behalf. And so this was a direct attack, not against the, the biggest deity of the Egyptians, but actually against Pharaoh himself, that when people were looking towards this light, they were looking towards a false light. 
And so when God gives darkness to the Egyptians, it was almost like he was making their spiritual uh, reality of who they are evident to them physically. For why they were worshiping this false, like looking up in the sky, thinking they were in the light. He says, in reality, you are in the darkness for you worship idols. You are in the darkness because you are not worshiping the true light that comes to save the world. You are worshiping things that are going to lead you towards death and destruction. And so now this is how you are. And he turned off the lights. And they realized their spiritual state. Well, hopefully they realize this is truly who we are. In the darkness, in the domain of darkness, destined to be in darkness forever. It's so funny, it's so easy to look up, whether you're ancient Egyptian or whatever, it's easy to look up at creation and the magnificence there and be amazed and be tempted to worship it. I think it's a human tendency to do so. And we can look at the sun. The sun kind of sets the course. It gives, gives kind of our calendar. It's, it gives us our day. We see by it. We see how it warms us. We can see this magnificent thing and we are tempted to worship it. When I stumbled across a quote that I could not find again, but it was something to the extent of, you can look at the sun and it will burn your eyes from 93 million miles away. And yet we think we can stumble into the presence of its creator and be perfectly fine. That God was making it clear, this mighty star that gives life for heat and photosynthesis and all that, is nothing compared to the glory and might of our great God. He was making that clear again to them, making it clear that they were in darkness, even though they looked towards a light. It's no wonder that the Bible again and again uses this metaphor of light and darkness. That people who do not know the true God are in darkness, but there is a light that has come into the world. The Gospel of John starts with that kind of language. In John, uh, John chapter 1, it talks about Jesus Christ being that light. He says, in, in him was life, and the life, life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Talking about how when that this is the true light. This is a light that saves people. This is a light that gives life. And it's not from the sun, but it's from God's Son, who came into the world to save us. In John chapter 3, verse 19 and on, it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, People who don't know the true light are in darkness and they love it. And God is turning off the lights to show them their true spiritual state. And then we know this truth who understand that we're in Christ. We who understand that we're in Christ know that we were too once were in darkness, but we've been pulled and brought into light as 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again and again, we see why that metaphor is so powerful, because it shows the truth of who God is, that he is the true light that we should look towards. 
He is a true light that gives life. He is a true light that guides us when through life. And the response to that is that we humble ourselves before our eclipsing God because our God is greater than anything else. He eclipses everything else. That we humble ourselves before our eclipsing God. I love this chapter because we have that direct kind of a command given by God through Moses to Pharaoh. Now back in verse, uh, <coughs> excuse me, verse 2, or I think it's actually verse 4 or 3. It's verse 3. I found it. God, through Moses, says this, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That God is, is speaking through Moses to Pharaoh and says, How long are you going to be so proud to think you can still defy me? How long are you thinking you can stand against me? Just think about all that Pharaoh has experienced, all that he's gone through, how he's seen his deity after deity topple before the Almighty God, how he has seen the lifeblood of the nation of the Nile turn into blood, how he's seen frogs who they worship now plague the land and they don't want frogs anymore, how he's seen gnats and flies just gather around and pester them, how they've seen the livestock die off, how they've seen all the people, even himself, covered in boils, how they have seen a storm unlike any other storm kind of sweep across the nation, destroying all the fields, and now Moses God through Moses says, how long do you think you can stand against me? How long are you going to refuse to humble yourself against before me? Do you think you still can defy the almighty God? And Pharaoh still stood before God, proud, thinking somehow he could defy God himself. But you know what? We can't be too hard on Pharaoh because we're all very proud people. Humanity is so proud of itself. And we think we can stand before the Creator and demand our own way. I mean, we see it especially in humanity apart from Christ. Humanity apart from Christ, that's their state, right? Is that they are in this proud state where they think they can rule their lives. They think they can determine what they do. They think they are the master of this world. They think the world is actually centers around them. And so they stand proud before God and say, this is how I'm going to do it. And I don't want to even hear about you. That is humanity. But even us who know Christ, who should know better, we can be so proud. We can walk through our days thinking that the world resolves around us. And then when people remind us of the fact that we're not the center of the universe, we get mad. Because aren't we the center of the universe? And, but we're not. We can be so proud. We can be so caught up in who we are that we can, without even realizing it, part, start positioning ourselves to defy the God who has made himself very clear to us about how powerful he is and his demand upon who we are and the fact that we should humble ourselves before him. In fact, at the beginning of faith, truly coming in faith before God requires humility. It requires us to realize I don't have what it takes. In fact, I don't have what it takes to get through life. 
let alone get to God. So humility, realizing that we are imperfect, and we are sinners, we are in rebels against our almighty God, and so at the beginning of faith is this humility that makes us throw ourselves before the feet of our almighty God and say, save me, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the great thing about our Father in heaven is that he responds with grace. That those who humble themselves before our Almighty God receive grace. Those who humble themselves and realize we don't have, a, have what it takes, we can't save ourselves, we need a Savior, we need to trust and lean upon our God, receive grace from Him again and again. And that we need to reflect again and again as Christ followers. That's how we come to faith in Christ. Knowing we don't have it together, but knowing that God gives us what we need, that we need to live in that same fashion. If we can ask ourselves, are we still trying to prove who we are through pride to stand before God, or are we coming with the empty hands of faith? Are we still trying to show God, hey, we're good enough, you chose the right person, and thinking we can somehow bring something to God, or are we leaning on Christ totally for how he has saved us and then respond with all of we are, imperfect though it is, knowing that God loves us. That that the heart of faith is this humility where we can humble ourselves before our eclipsing God, knowing he responds with grace and love. Humble yourselves before our eclipsing God. But I also love this. Because you see that pride in Pharaoh, but you also see the, rea the reality of what his servants, what probably what the, other, the whole rest of the nation is ex experiencing through this. That the rest of the nation, basically his servants, are just like, what is going on, Pharaoh? Why are you doing this to us? In verse 7, this is, this is that's my summation, my, my paraphrase. In verse 7 it says, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men, men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? His servants were basically saying, Pharaoh, what are you doing? Why won't you just let them go? His servants were like, We have nothing left. He's destroyed everything. God has destroyed everything. Let them go. And Pharaoh should listen to the wisdom of his servants, and yet he doesn't. We see he doesn't. Why? Because he, then he tries to bargain with God. What is Pharaoh's response? He calls Aaron and Moses and says, hey, okay, so who's going, right? Just men? They can go, right? Right? And Moses is like, oh, no, no, no. This has to be the men, the women, the children, and all of our flocks. That's who's got to go. And he's like, no, 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 get out of here. And then later in the chapter, he, he calls them back and goes, okay, all right, all right, all right. I give up. The men can go, the children can go, the women can go, but leave your flocks and your herds here. And again, Moses says, no, it's all or nothing. Pharaoh's problem was that he thought he could come to God on his terms. He thought he was... Bargaining with God as an equal, saying, okay, this is how it's going to work. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can. He was getting the best deal. He thought he actually could bargain with God on his terms and not realizing that when you come to God, it's always on God's terms, not our own. And that's the truth of how God operates. And the truth is that humanity always wants to bargain on our terms. We think we can get a better deal. We think we can make him see who we are. But the fact is 
that when we come to God, it's never on our terms, it's always on his terms. And that he demands it all. Jesus did as well. We see that in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He says, Jesus talking to his disciples, talking to people who follow him, he says, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he would let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That when it comes to following God, it comes to knowing God, you don't bargain with God. It's his way and how we come to him. Humanity wants to bargain God. We like to bargain to God. I like to bargain with God. And how wrong is that? Christians bargain with God all the time. If you're like me, you do. We find ourselves praying, God, I've given to the church, right? So aren't you supposed to give something back to me? Maybe we find ourselves thinking, I've been a good Christian, whatever a good Christian is. I read my Bible, I pray. Therefore, God, don't I get something back? And we find ourselves bargaining with God, thinking, I've done this, therefore, don't you owe me something, God? And it shows how we are still operating like Pharaoh from a place of pride, where we think we can turn God into a cosmic bin machine, that we put a couple of tokens of prayer, of fasting, of maybe giving into that bin machine, we get what we want. And God says, you fools. When you come before me, it's not on your terms. It's on my terms. How do you come before me? Humble yourself and realize you bring nothing to the table except the sin that makes it necessary for me to save you. And I will give you everything you possibly need. Is that, is that weird counterintuitive faith where we come with nothing? We don't deserve it. We don't, so if we're honest, we probably don't even expect it. But we come before God with nothing, and he responds with everything we possibly can need. To be his, to follow him, to be saved as we come to him through Christ. So that was just, I'll say this more to myself than anyone else. We need to say to ourselves, stop being proud and humble yourselves before our God and he'll give you everything you need. But I love this account as well because we see the purpose again for these plagues. We see why God is doing this. And now it's verse 2, is when we see this. When he says, And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. That God is doing this. Why? It's to show his power to Egyptians. Yes, it's to free his people. Yes, it's to do all those things. Yes, but primarily it's so that the, Egypt, the, the Israel people can now go to their sons, their grandchildren, their daughters, and they can tell the story and the people can know who God is. 
That God is saying, this is the story that you tell your people that defines them. This is the story that you tell your kids, you train your grandchildren on, that when they gather together, when, when you're old and you're in the promised land, and they go, hey, tell us about our God. This is the story you tell. This is our mighty God who frees us from slavery. This is our mighty God who just demonstrates again and again his power. This is our mighty God who says he's going to do something and he does it. This is our great God who has the power to fill all his promises. This is a great God who redeemed us from slavery. This is our great God. Listen to this story. It's a story that frames their national consciousness, that this is who they are. It's a story of salvation. This is our God of salvation and how he saves us. It's a story of these true facts that happen, these true facts that they can look back on and say, this is our God who acts in history. This is a story that tells them where they came from. We came from there, but he was not content to let us stay there, and he brought us out. It's a story about where they're going. He's taking us to the promised land. He's going to take us and save us. It's a story that gives them an identity of who they are, and tells them about who God is. And when you have a story like that, you tell everyone, especially your family, and raise them in the ways they should go. We see this. When you're, when you're reading further through the Bible, you see how the Israelites taught this story to their kids. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see this kind of command about how they should teach their kids, raise them in a way that they actually write this, this kind of story down and they, and they continue to uh, instruct their kids in the way they should go. And I love this phrase, this, this, this kind of uh, language starting in Deuteronomy 6 chapter 20. It says, And when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and his, all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that, we might br that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good for our good always, that he might preserve in us alive as we are today. And it will be righteous for us if we are careful to do all his commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Love that. When, the, when a child comes before him, why do we listen to God? What's the response? Is tell them this story about how God saves you. If you know Christ, we have an even a greater story. We have a story that frames our thinking. We have a story that gives us identity. We have a story that tells us how we're saved. That God loved us so much, he was not content to let us stay away from him and go into destruction, but he sent his son, living for us, living the life we could not live as he lived perfectly in the law, dying for us, going to the death he did not deserve, but we deserved, but taking our sin upon himself so that now we could receive his right standing before our holy God. And we know this is true because he rose on the third day, proving he was God, and he now sits at 
the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. This is the story of our salvation. It frames who we are as a people of God. This is the story that tells us where we worked, where we came from, that we were sinners apart from God, rebels without a cause, but he saved us. This is a story about where we're going, that he has gone before us. He has prepared a place for us with his Father, and that is where we're going as a people. He will come back one day to ensure we get there, and that's where we're going. It's a story that tells us about our meaning of life, the purpose of life, that we were created to glorify God, to find fulfillment in God, to find a completion in Him. It's the story of our life. And when we think about this story, it's so much greater than this story that the Israelites had when they were brought out of Egypt. Why? Because it's the completion of that story, where this is just pointing to the way in which God saves and showing how God saves and setting up his people to be in the land where the Savior would come. We know the complete story, that he has come and he has saved us. And it's a story that we now turn to our children and when they ask us, why, why do we go to church on a Sunday? Why do we pray before meals? Why do we do this? Why do you give money to missionaries and, and all, all these things? And when they ask you why, you can say, gather around, let me tell you a story about how much God loves us, that he saved us in spite of ourselves. So we tell the story to our kids, and we tell the story to anyone who would hear. And it's true, if this is your story, do you believe that story, the truth of who God is? If you don't, I would just ask that you humble yourself enough to look at our eclipsing God. Humble yourself enough to pick up the word and read about Christ. Humble yourself enough to ask someone what this all means and see who God truly is. But if, you, if this is truly a story, then I think this is an urge and a command to pass on this story. That if you are a parent... One of the first priorities, the first, the first place you pass on the story is your child, that you raise them in knowledge of who God is. That everyone and anyone turns around and sees anyone and everyone in their life who does not know Christ and they pass on this story. That you say you must hear this truth. Why? Because this is the greatest story. This is just a great story that is your story without you even knowing it. It's just a great story that your story can come under this story and it makes sense of what you go through. It makes sense of who you are. It makes sense of where you're going. If you just understand this story, your life actually clicks into place and you understand this world as God has designed it. And so you pass on the story that we humble ourselves before our eclipsing God and we pass on this truth to all who would hear. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this word, this story that we can know the truth of who you are and relay it to people who need to know it. And I pray for, I pray for all the kids that are represented by everyone here. I pray for the kids who are back in the kids' room Kids' rooms, I pray for kids who might not be here this morning, but I just pray that they truly can hear this story and respond to it. I pray that you can use us, imperfect people though we are, 
to pass on this story to all who need to hear. That we can be your mouthpiece. That we can speak of the truth of how you have saved us. I pray for your spirit to move powerfully as we do so, so that hearts can be open and people can see the truth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.